0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: They're typically covered in just vast, vast clouds of planktivorous fish, butterfly perch hang around there, and often big schools of jack mackerel come past. When you're amongst those deep systems and you're just surrounded by schools of fish like that, there's probably nothing even in the tropics that that can be that equivalent. The colours of the sponges and things, it is just quite amazing that the height and the structure of them are equal as complex as any coral system anywhere. But then I'm never quite sure whether I'm just making that up because I'm (laughs) suffering from nitrogen narcosis (laughs) and effectively had the equivalent of half a bottle of wine.
0: Every dive could be a world-class dive if you're knocked, that's an intoxicated feeling that some scuba divers get when they go deep.
1: We also take video when we're down there, so you can come back up if you have any doubts. You can review the video and go, no, you know, it was as good as I thought.
0: <laughs> OK, video evidence is important when claiming that your dive gives the Great Barrier Reef a run for its money. Welcome to Off Track Underwater. I'm Dr Ann Jones. I'm still at the Great Barrier Reef at the moment, where ABC TV is attempting to live broadcast the coral spawning right into your living room with Reef Live. Check out the off-track website or ABC iView for more information on where to see that. Producer Joe Kahn is dreaming about diving on a different kind of reef, much further south and much, much deeper. And people getting nitrogen narcosis while scuba diving is a part of the reason why we know so little about them.
2: Once, when I was on a training dive, I experienced that feeling of nitrogen narcosis. I couldn't work out what the answer to one plus zero was. So you can see why it's not particularly safe for scientists to work at any great depth underwater. Today, we're on the east coast of Tasmania at Bishno, looking out to the vast blue expanse of the Tasman Sea and wondering what lies beneath the ocean surface here. Because somewhere out there, and all around southern Australia, there are temperate reefs, complex rocky structures under the sea that are covered with sponges and sea squirts and coral, but just not the corals of a tropical reef. We are going to go deeper on these cool temperate reefs, but in the shallows, competing for access to sunlight, are the seaweeds.
1: And we've got a range of species of kelp, including the bull kelp that's as tough as nails. It is just like the thickest leather hide you've ever seen.
2: Neville Barrett is a researcher at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. He's also a leader in the Marine Biodiversity Hub of the National Environmental Science Program.
1: You know, plants two, three, four metres in length and they've got a what we call a holdfast. fast. It glues onto the rock like superglue. You cannot pull one of these plants off if you try. Um, and they can whip around in 10 metre swells and it, it, it's so tough it doesn't seem to bother them. So they dominate that kind of environment. But once you get down you know, below those light depths where, where light um, limits it, you'll get all sorts of big, tall sponges and delicate sponges, just like you get delicate corals in the coral reef system.
2: If you circumnavigated the Tasmanian coast at about 30 metres under the water, the seascape would look different just about every time you adjusted your course. There are granite boulder fields where every little pocket of space has a lobster in it, and then there are low-profile reefs made up only of soft corals. But here on the east coast, things are a bit strange.
1: We've got a relic ancient coastline that runs a long way up the east coast of Tasmania from the last glacial and probably the last glacial before that where we end up with what were dune fields, presumably, coastal sand dunes. And they provide the equivalent of a reef. They're fairly hard, but there's no nooks and crannies in them. They're typically just like a sand dune in shape. You do find, you know, striped trumpet or another fish out there, but you wouldn't find an urchin or a sea star or anything else that normally lives amongst the nooks and crannies, because there aren't any.
2: Except in the case of this one reef, there are. It's just that no one knew about them until recently. When Neville was mapping the seabed around Freysenay and Bishno, the boat skipper spotted a mark on his chart to indicate that something was there. So they mapped it and...
1: There was a great big massive bonnie that came out of 80 metres up to 60 metres and was incredibly fractured by ledges and crevices and things.
2: Using sonar, they mapped the three-dimensional structure of the reef and then sent out an autonomous underwater vehicle, or AUV, to take photos of it
1: allows us to build up not just a a picture of what lives there, but we know precisely where each of those photos has been taken from. And we can match that back with the map we've made so we can see, you know, that that particular species of sponge is only ever found on the tops of the reef. So we can really build up a really good understanding of of what lives where and, and why.
2: Now, that might be enough to show that this particular reef is different from one on the other side of Tassie and to count the different numbers and types of corals, for example. But without getting any closer, you can't fully understand what's going on there.
1: We had uh, colleagues or or recreational dive community folks that were always tapping us on the shoulder to see, you know, if we'd mapped anything new and exciting. Yeah, James and Andreas, uh, they just basically saw the mapping and said, oh, we we want to go there.
2: But you can't just send any divers down to 60 metres for safety reasons. So the two divers who made the first dive on this reef, Joe's Reef, were technical divers and they were using rebreathers, a breathing apparatus that effectively recycles the air and allows you to go deeper and stay down longer.
1: It's fantastic when some of these divers can get down there and take a video high resolution, you know, looking across across the reef system and, and allowing us to have a much better look at not just at the stuff that grows on the bottom but all the fishes and things that are hovering off the bottom as well.
2: And then what was it like when you did get to see that footage that they recorded?
1: Oh, absolutely fantastic. Apart from the pangs of jealousy. <laughs> no, it was, it was amazing.
2: The footage revealed a vibrant reef ecosystem full of hard and soft corals, sponges and all sorts of fish and invertebrates, completely different from the smooth, bare, dune-like rock that extended in all directions around it. And this is what Joe's Reef sounds like. Thank you to James Parkinson for sharing this sound that was recorded on that very first dive. And despite their highly technical setup, there's still really only one way to get your buddy's attention underwater
1: funny enough, I'd always suspected you know that that's Joe's reef system would potentially have some black corals on it um, because it was in the right depth band we'd actually taken photos of black corals with the AUV system but we hadn't had the time to look through them properly and hadn't even seen that they were there so it was you know quite a quite an exciting surprise when they not only came back and said we found some black corals but you know they, they had some really great video footage to show us.
2: Black coral. How can coral be black? Black is the last colour you'd associate with coral. There is so very little known about black corals that even Jeremy Horowitz, who's doing his PhD on them at JCU, sort of came across them by accident when he was in the Peace Corps in the Philippines.
3: I work with a community surveying coral reefs and uh, specifically I was helping with ecotourism. So I rented some gear from the dive shop, came back to my site, I put the gear on, I waltzed out into the water, and just swam down. And I came into this large field of these big, bushy corals. And I didn't know what they were at the time, there were thousands of them, they were really densely packed. And these were five meter tall, five meter wide branching corals, and starts at like 20 meters and goes down to like 45. So you swim through the colonies, and they're also hosts of many fish and shrimps and squid, little tiny invertebrate associated species that live off these really large colonies. So I took some pictures and sent it to some people, and they told me that they were black corals.
2: And so Jeremy's PhD project was born, doing the absolute fundamental science on black corals, which
3: are considered hex corals. They have six tentacles. They're very closely related to what most people think of when they think of corals, which are hard corals or sclerotinians. Black corals are essentially the sister group to the hard corals.
2: But one of the big differences between black corals and hard corals is in their name.
3: So they have a skeleton made of fibrous proteins and chitin. So chitin, you know, like a beetle's made of chitin, it's jet black. So similarly with black corals, if you strip away their colorful tissue, you'll see this beautiful black color. And that's actually why they're really popular in the jewelry industry, because what they do is they take black corals, they, they kind of work them, smooth them out, and then you can make them into nice beads or sculptures and they go for a lot of money. So they can be unbranched and just kind of like a singular whip. Or they could be highly complexly branched, where they have a stem and many branches and then sub-branches coming off of the branches. So they could be, they could look like trees. They could be five metres tall and five metres wide, or they could be very small and either simple or complex.
2: And it was huge, tall, bushy, tree-shaped black corals that Neville Barrett saw on the footage of Joe's Reef. And their white tissue on top of a black skeleton really does look like a Christmas tree that's all but completely covered in snow. But it's not just their bizarre beauty that captivates people.
3: So dating on black corals has very recently allowed us to figure out that they live a really long time. Individual colonies, we found out that they could live over 4,000 years old. And that also adds to the really interesting story about black corals. They're really slow growing. They're really old. There aren't many species. So an individual colony is very important to protect. Um, And they're also often found in the deep. So, um, you know, we're now starting to see uh, mining and deep sea fishing. As our technology gets better, we're getting better at, you know, extracting from the deep sea. Um, And that has implications for conservation of what we call phylogenetic diversity or, you know, protecting very different aged groups of life. So if these really old, slow-growing corals are destroyed and go extinct, you lose that species, but you also lose all that time that that species and its relatives have evolved. That entire branch of the tree of life goes away.
2: So you can start to understand their allure, why their discovery off the coast at Bishno got so many in the Tasmanian diving community excited, including Neville Barrett.
1: They've certainly been seen in Tasmanian waters by trawl fishermen operating out deeper, uh, orange roughy trawl boats that often bring them up on the back deck. And I'm sure other commercial trawl fishermen would have pulled them up out of 100 to 200 metres of water just around the Tasmanian shelf. But from the recreational or just the normal dive community, no one's certainly ever seen them before Tasmanian waters has been a bit of a holy grail to see if they existed.
2: Jeremy said that there was a black coral colony that had been aged at over 4,000 years old. But black corals are also ancient in another way.
3: They've been around for over 300 million years old. And, And one would expect, you know, they're old, they look so different. They've clearly evolved to be able to live in these different habitats and different climates, but there's less than 300 species, which is a really interesting finding and something that has driven me and others to explore and understand their evolutionary history because uh, closely related groups like the hard corals have over a thousand species. To date, we haven't found one fossil of an extinct species of black coral. And with hard corals, there are lots of fossils everywhere. You know, if you hike inland where the reefs used to be, you'll find now extinct species. And then you could say, okay, this species occurred during, you know, this many million years ago, but with black corals, for whatever reason, no fossils exist. And so what that means is we have to go on other groups like hard corals to infer, well, one, how old black corals are, and two, understand how they have evolved.
2: So these are old species, like really old and Mysteriously, we haven't found any fossils of them yet. But despite there being so few species of black coral, they're found everywhere.
3: They are found at all depths from one metre down to over 8,000 metres. They're found in all habitats in warm water, cold water, sand, rubble.
2: And in sea caves, too. So, why does a group like the hard corals of our tropical reefs have thousands of species? when black corals are found in so many more habitats but have fewer species?
3: They're just, I guess, resilient and able to survive. Specific species can occur at along really wide depth ranges. So, you know, a given species can be at 50 meters. It can be at 300 meters. A lot changes from 50 to 300 meters. You know, the sunlight decreases, the temperature decreases, uh, salinity changes. So a lot of corals, have very distinct, specific depth ranges that they can occur within. And when you change that depth, you find different species. Uh, but with black corals, a lot of them have really wide ranges. There's a, a specific species that can be at 6,000 metres at 2,000 metres.
2: So right now, Jeremy is studying and sequencing the DNA of as many black coral samples as he can get his hands on to try and reveal the evolutionary history of these animals. And that means he spends lots of time in Australian museums.
3: Really, mostly, they have black corals from expeditions, um, but just generally they're unidentified because it takes someone with a bit of understanding about the taxonomy to name the black coral. When I first came to Australia, I went to the Queensland Museum in Brisbane and I talked to the curator, Merrick Ekans, and I asked him uh, where his black corals were. And so he brought me over to them, and there was a lot, and they were from the, the Great Barrier Reef, from the Coral Sea, but they were just named Black Coral, you know, Black Coral 1, Black Coral 2. And so when I finally got down to identifying the species, it was lots of range expansions, and the same for the Museum of Tropical Queensland. There was a really cool expedition done a little while back in the Coral Sea, and these really rare deep-sea corals were collected and put in jars, but no one ever looked at them. So. When I looked at them, I was able to identify them and update species ranges. And I even combined two different species. We thought they were different, but since we had so many representations of these two species, we lined them up and we were able to determine that it's actually one species. And the differences are just attributed to age. These collections are treasure troves of information. So now all I need to do is just go to all these museums, get samples from all these specimens, and just put the pieces of the puzzle together.
2: Sounds pretty straightforward. No, I'm just kidding. You're listening to Off Track with me, Joe Kahn. And if you think of a reef, and the only thing that comes to mind is the Great Barrier Reef, then you've got so much more magic to find out about. There are the deep-sea black corals from the temperate reefs of Tasmania, And there are soft ones too. Dr Kiralee Moore is the Invertebrate Collection Manager at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery.
4: And then we've got requests, which is really... He's received requests from
2: Jeremy about the black corals. And this is what happens with taxonomic researchers around the world. They sort of play pass the parcel with a whole heap of precious information and then piece together the layers of biological and evolutionary history into a more coherent story. And for Curalea's soft corals, when it came to identifying a soft coral sample collected years back from a Tasmanian seamant, she had to look overseas for a species that might be in the same group and help her identify. it.
4: There was one species described in the world and it was from Nova Scotia of Canada. So I borrowed the type specimen and I've got some specimens from the type locality and got some DNA from those and I've got some DNA from the stuff from Tasmania and morphologically and genetically I can't tell them apart. It
2: would be highly unusual for a coral to be the same species from Tasmania all the way to Canada.
4: Your heart tells you that they're not the same but your head can't distinguish between them. So what do you do? (laughs) I'm struggling with this at the moment. It's entirely possible that they're the same species and it's just a very widespread species. We've also got some from Ireland, which tend to be the same species.
2: And if the Canadian species is the same as the Tasmanian species, what does that tell you about the coral's, you know, life cycle or age or growth rate?
4: Mostly soft corals tend to have a fairly short larval span, we think, A short larva span means the larvae aren't in the water column for very long and then they fall to the seafloor and form a new colony. So that would suggest they haven't got the ability to move very far in one lifetime. So the assumption is that means it's a species that evolved a long time ago, so it's had a long time to spread from ocean to ocean. So it's not impossible. One option is that it could be one species and it's very old, It could be that there are two species and they haven't changed much relative to each other since they diverged, that we can't pick it up with the gene region we're using.
2: So it's possible that you might find a portion of the genome where there is actually a difference between them and then that could help you identify whether it's one or two species.
4: That's what I'm thinking is more likely. My heart tells me that it's just too unlikely that they're the same species.
2: But even if they are two different species of coral, it's still pretty incredible that they can be so genetically similar despite the fact they're literally oceans apart. And unlike black corals, soft corals don't just live everywhere.
4: We think that there's very little crossover with the species that are up in the shallow water versus the ones that occur in the deep water. So they're really specific to the deep water. They've probably actually really adapt, like lots of differences between them, like growth rate and structural integrity like they don't have to worry about waves for example, and they'll have different predators they may have a different feeding mechanisms, because there's potentially much less food in a deep sea as well
2: We can't paint these deep reefs as completely alien and foreign though, and they don't exist in isolation from each other or the rest of the ocean either. Dr Neville Barrett explains
1: what we have seen, for example, is a species that's crawled and handlined and everything netted called the common perch. And it was believed that all the juveniles, when they came in and settled from the plankton as, as young larvae, that they all grew up in estuaries. And that from these estuaries then, they'd move offshore onto the trawl grounds and deeper reefs where they were subject to, to fishing. But I was on a project where we tried to use, you know, um, signatures, chemicals in their ear bones to work out which estuary they'd grown up in knowing that each estuary around Tasmania has got a very characteristic signal. So you should be able to tell where that fish has actually grown up. (laughs) It didn't work at all. You couldn't work out where on earth those things came from. It was all just a hodgepodge and a mess and thought it was a bit strange you couldn't do that. But now we know why, because, you know, in the video work we've got uh, imagery, we've seen tiny juveniles of that species out there at 140 metres. They've settled out there and they're growing up very happily as little juveniles out there just picking little bits of food off the seabed, and, and it's been enough for that species. So, you know, that recent work's completely reversed the paradigm that we had uh, nearly 30 years ago now. It's completely knocked it on its head.
2: Why is that important, understanding these deeper systems?
1: We've got climate change happening and and there's all sorts of threats that are happening as part of that. You know, deep reefs just as exposed to, you know, changes in nutrients and temperature um, as, as shallow systems, perhaps more so in, in some cases and, you know, sort of need to know what's there, my biodiversity, before perhaps we lose it. You know, some of those reef systems that are trawled over, even though trawlers normally target soft sediment, if it's a low profile enough reef, it will be trawled over as well. We still don't know what the impacts of that process is and, you know, whether they're small, insignificant or, or large.
2: With climate change, is there any evidence that deeper reefs can provide a sort of refuge for shallower areas that might be affected first by things like warming ocean temperatures?
1: There is some degree of deep water refuge for a range of species. And in a climate context, that can be quite important. Again, one of the main ones, you know, is probably more at the moment in, in coral systems where you end up with coral bleaching. There's definitely a possibility that, you know, once you get down, you know, even even 10 or 20 metres, um, you can, for a start, be below at least the the worst excesses of ultraviolet life, which tend to cause a lot of the bleaching. But I guess more importantly, deeper waters, you know, once you get below 10 or, or even 20 or 30 metres, it can be a few degrees colder but it's not always the case, so it's <laughs> certainly not something to hang your head on. Sometimes that situation doesn't occur and some of these bigger heatwave events on the Great Barrier Reef have, you know, been where the water's the same temperature from top down to 50 plus metres, so there is no deep refuge.
2: But when it comes to temperate reefs, we just don't know enough to predict how different things at different depths will respond to climate change. But Dr Barrett hopes that having a National Marine Park System in place may soon change that.
1: We've got this new um, Australian Marine Park network around our, our whole country now. It's a, it's a vast network. But, you know, that for the vast majority of those new marine reserves, they are literally just lines on maps. For most of them, we still don't have a clue what's in them. We haven't mapped the seabed. We don't even know if there's reef or sand in some of them mean, oh, deep waters around Australia, you know, really the only research that ever gets done or is done has always just been on the targeted species. You know, it's on the snapper or the lobster or the real interest at the species level, but complete lack of interest about habitats and ecosystem impacts of taking out top predators and things. And so it's really exciting to have the Australian Marine Park Network out there and to have a, you know, Parks Australia management structure that has a real interest in, in understanding how deeper water ecosystems function.
0: Dr Neville Barrett from the University of Tasmania ending the program produced by Joe Kahn. There's so much happening on the reefs that Joe has only scratched the surface of it with this program so if you want more reef stories you should check out the never before attempted live TV broadcast of the Great Barrier Reef coral spawning. Head to the Off Track website to find out where you can watch reef live events and then meet me here at the same time next time because I'll be taking you somewhere else.